Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 94 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk with Greg Siskind, who had one of the first law firm websites and the first law blog about how online marketing has evolved since 1994, which is basically when it began. Today's podcast is sponsored by Zero, beautiful legal accounting simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we think they are awesome. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So Sam, I'm very excited to announce that here in episode 94 of our podcast, we are officially becoming part of the Legal Talk Network. Yay! Yay! So the Legal Talk Network (laughs) is the leading or only network of legal podcasts in the world. They have dozens of law-related podcasts that they produce and distribute, and we are really excited to now be distributed by them. Yeah, I mean, it's great that the best legal podcast will now be part of the best legal podcast network, I think. Way to toot your own horn. (laughs) Actually, one of the things that's neat about it is Legal Talk Network has an app. So if for some reason subscribing to the podcast in the usual ways isn't your thing or you already have the Legal Talk Network app, I think it's pretty cool that we'll just pop up in there. Yeah, another thing I'm really excited about is that because their network work includes all sorts of other really great shows and hosts and guests. I think this will be an opportunity for us to engage with some of those folks more and to hopefully promote some other great legal podcasts on our podcast. And one thing that may change with our show is over time, hopefully the sound quality will get a little bit better. We started this with some nice but cheap USB microphones. And I don't know if you go back and listen to those early episodes, we were really still figuring stuff out. But uh, LTN really emphasizes quality and they understand audio recording far better than us amateurs do, even though we have a very professional audio engineer who tries to help us out. I always feel like he's kind of shaking his head. (laughs) So hopefully over the next few episodes, we might upgrade our equipment and with the help of Legal Talk Network. So that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I am really excited for us to be a part of their network. I'm really excited to work with their incredible team of hardworking podcast professionals. And it'll be really great to connect with some of the other legal podcasters. If you haven't yet, you should go to Legal Talk Network, their website, or their app, and check out some of the other shows that they offer too. Don't stop subscribing to ours though. So here's my conversation with Greg, but before I get started, if you're at your computer, as opposed to just sitting with your iPhone or your Android phone or whatever, um, if you're at your computer, pull up the Wayback Machine, just Google it if you aren't familiar, and pull up visalaw.com in the Wayback Machine and go all the way back to the very first cached copy of visalaw.com, which I think is about 96 or 97, uh, because it's kind of fun to look at what is one of the first law firm websites while we're talking about it. So here's my conversation with Greg. Uh, 
I'm Greg Siskind. I'm an immigration lawyer. I've been practicing since 1990. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. I also write a book for the ABA's Law Practice Division called The Lawyer's Guide to Marketing on the Internet. Hi, Greg. Thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. So um, before we get to talking about what it's like to have the first website and blog and um, and mar- how marketing has changed over the years, um, tell me about the firm that you have now and what it looks like. Well, the firm is the same firm that I started in 1994 as a solo. Uh, we are today uh, 11 lawyers and about 30, a little over 30, I think about 32 people on our staff now all together. And uh, we're in two cities, Memphis and Nashville, and it is a uh, it's it's the same firm, although it feels a lot bigger. It's been obviously 22 years that the uh, firm's been around. It feels a little different than it did at the beginning. Yeah, I bet. What is the what are the is the firm look like? I mean, I would expect it's a fairly tech enabled firm from from the reason that we're getting together to talk today. Uh, it is, although I, I think that really in the last. Um, Last two years, we've gotten, we've, we've moved in some new directions and gotten a lot more serious about incorporating technology into the practice in ways that we hadn't before. Um, we hired a, uh, a, a, a full-time systems op- optimization manager is the title oh. we gave for the position. But basically, and I know I, I heard on a recent podcast that uh, you were interviewing somebody that had talked about the Checklist Manifesto, mm-hmm. Atul Gawande's great book. Uh, I got inspired by that as well. Uh, and also... Um, the uh, some of the books uh, by uh, by um, the Suskins uh, in the UK uh, mm-hmm. regarding the future of the practice of law, and we decided to implement a, a number of changes at the firm to try and uh, have uniform systems and checklists, and uh, starting to incorporate artificial intelligence into some of the uh, ways that we're working in the practice, and it's uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's it's I think it sort of feels like the firm is being reborn. Oh, very cool. So, can you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, as soon as, soon as you say AI, you know, I love I love robots. Um, so, I always want to talk about that. So, tell me some of the, can you talk about some of the things that you're looking to do now and, and in the near future? Yeah. So, I mean, we've gotten started um, using, uh, we're, I think we're the first, uh, um, first immigration law firm to be using Neotologic, um, which oh. I don't know if you've talked about yeah. that before, but we have been, uh, we're, and uh, we've built a couple of apps uh, so far. Um, we have a number that are in the works. Um, one that was, uh, it was, it's kind of an unfortunate story, but uh, it was a good exercise. Our, our debut app was going to be a pro bono uh, app that was going to uh, help people figure out whether they qualified for the deferred action um, yeah. for Parents of Americans program that uh, the president had proposed in 2014. And it was a, it was pretty cool as far as you know taking people through a a, a decision a, a, a decision um, well a question a questionnaire online and then basically the questions change up depending on how you answer them and then at the end it gives you a legal analysis about we did a red light yellow light green light as far as whether people were going to qualify and there are a lot of people that take advantage of uh, of that population uh, unfortunately that are out there some a lot of non lawyers some lawyers. Uh, and we just wanted to give people a good sense about whether they qualified for the program before they actually ever stepped foot into uh, a, a law office or a notario's office, hopefully mm-hmm. not there. <laughs> um, and then uh, the app was set to debut last June. Um, we were going to have it coincide with the Supreme Court decision, which we were uh, keeping our fingers crossed that was going to go the uh, the way we wanted. 
uh, and we had press releases ready to go. The app was ready to flip the switch as soon as uh, the, uh, the the Supreme Court decision came down. But alas, <laughs> the court reached a tie. Uh, so <laughs> no uh, no DAPA program for now. The, uh-huh. app is, uh, the app is still there. It's ready to go as soon as... Uh, as soon as the court uh, gets another justice if gotcha. they, on there, but we that that was a we wanted to go through that just to really learn the software, um, and it was a good exercise for us. And now we're working on a lot of them, some of which are, uh, are way more complicated than that. Some of them are for clients, some of them are internal, um, and some of them will be marketing. It, it's um now, now I don't I don't know much about immigration, so maybe I'm just uh, making stuff up here. But it it seems to me that kind of like bankruptcy or maybe work comp, uh, immigration law is uh, very process-driven and maybe lends itself a little bit more than some areas of practice to the kind of automation and systemization and and checklist manifestoing that you're doing. (laughs) Do you think that's true? I do think that's true to an extent. Um, You know, I think this is an area of, of, to, to some extent, I think there are some areas in this practice that uh, are, you know, they're, they're, you can automate them and they're highly, uh, and, and they really lend themselves to that. This is also an area I've discovered over the, you know, since it, it's been the same since the, I started practicing, you know, a quarter century ago, which is there's a whole lot of stuff that's not written mm-hmm. uh, in immigration law. They really have to monitor what trends are happening. You have to talk to people who've handled similar kinds of cases. You have to see, you know, where the where the government is uh, going on its request for evidence. And so for the more complicated types of cases, I, I think there's a lot of there's there's not a lot of predictability in the way things uh, go. And there's a um, there, there will still be a need for good lawyers, uh, no matter how much automation comes to this practice area, as long as the government operates that way. But it but there is a, but there it sounds like there's also sort of the a lot of lower level work that you can automate to make give yourself room to do more of the high level work. That's right. And that's actually part of the direction of where the firm is going, which is we're trying to set ourselves up for the next 25 years of uh, trying to really focus on higher end, higher value work uh, and trying to uh, trying also to take advantage of the automation that's possible on the lower end work so that we can profit from that. Um, but that uh, we can offer that inexpensively and automate a lot of that work. Uh, and, and and make some money there, but but really focus the lawyer time on the higher end work that uh, where you really do need to have conversations with lawyer and have uh, lawyers and have that kind of counsel. So um, I know I realize I'm taking us off on a tangent, but hey, it's my podcast. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so um, so I'm curious, like how do you how do you get your your team together and think through? What are the things we need to be doing? Does it feel like it's just obvious and so you just hire somebody and tell them what to do? Or are you yeah. engaging in like <laughs> in team exercises to try and identify the low-hanging fruit to tackle next? Or I mean, where do you how do you how do you think through those problems? Well, we actually put to, we well, first of all, I hired a staff person who's in charge of basically working on a lot of this stuff so that somebody it's somebody's full-time job to be thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was important. And then we have a, uh, a committee of about a half a dozen people in the firm that we meet over over a lunch every two weeks uh, and talk about all the initiatives that are going on. We have a plan for step-by-step the different areas of our practice that we're trying to uh, systemize. Uh, and it's a uh, it's it's moving along. We we think it'll take a couple couple more years before we're at a point that uh, I, I can really say that we could replicate ourselves 
uh, in you know any city we'd want to because we had everything we we had, we had a system for everything, um, and that may be down the road where we want to go, uh, which is to um, we've we've done some branching in the past. It hasn't been as uh, as successful as we would have liked. I think a lot of that is because we didn't have this kinds of systems um, in place that would make it very easy for us to. Uh, to, to ensure that each office is, is operating the same way. And so that's down the road where we may be going. That's one of the benefits that, that we'll have from this. But this committee, uh, we are talking about, you know, basically features of the software products that we want to roll out. We're talking about different types of cases and, and, and working on uh, step by getting all the steps down for each type of case, uh, making sure that the lawyers are all using the same checklist for the different types of cases. Um, and it has the benefit, I think, of, of improving the quality of the work we're putting out. It also will make it a lot easier to train people that are coming on board uh, because mm-hmm. we, have, we have it all laid out for them. Um, and then at the end of the day, I think we also get, uh, in addition to the quality, we get efficiencies that should hopefully make us uh, more profitable as well. You know, I, I recently read an article by Stephen Wolfram about, um, and he was talking about more advanced ways to draft contracts and be more specific about it. And But but one of his basic things is essentially that we should be trying to automate the low-level work because then we can work on high-level work and turn that into low-level work. And then we can work on higher-level work and turn that into low-level work. And pretty soon we're doing amazing stuff that we never thought was possible because we were so obsessed with the details. And I think most lawyers are still in the obsessed with the details phase um, and it, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you're, you're definitely not the only lawyer, but there aren't a ton of lawyers who are focused on trying to turn low level work into not work and then high level work into low level work and keep moving up. So it'll be interesting to touch base with you in three or four years and see like, okay, what kind of cool stuff are you doing now? And maybe you'll just be a national firm that's dealing with everything. Well, we'll see. Let's, let's put it on the calendar. For, we'll put it on the calendar for a couple of years. That's perfect. <laughs> so I want to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about the other thing that we came together to talk about today, which is you had the first website, the first blog, and those date all the way back to 1994. And so we're going to take a look at what they looked like and talk about what that's like and, and how your marketing has worked from that foundation over the years. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice problem is you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for, and writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero, including Lawyerist. Get a free trial at Zero.com, that's X-E-R-O.com, beautiful accounting software. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted. So when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. 
If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, and we're back. And Greg, I actually this morning pulled up the 1997, the June 27th, 1997 version of the Siskin, Susser, Haas, and Chang Immigration and Nationality Law website. And this is so 1997. <laughs> You've got like... Yeah, you know, I, ha- I had to learn HTML myself <laughs> to do that because they didn't have fancy web designers out there. Oh, I mean, it's great. It's got it's got a textured background and it's got tables with beveled edges and it's all text except for well, the... It's Net- hot stuff. It's got the Netscape <laughs> 3.0 uh, little tag at the bottom. <laughs> um, it's great, but... Uh, but this was 1990. I, I imagine it didn't change a whole lot between the time you created it and the and the version I'm looking at now. Um, well, I, I, there were some changes, uh, you know. And I actually, the only places I have to, to look at it is the um, the book that I wrote for the ABA in '96. I had a lot of screenshots um, of, of well, some screenshots of my website uh, that were illustrations in the book, and that's that's all that's left. I think. Yeah. <laughs> on it but uh yeah this is the version we're on today is actually version five yeah okay um and i i mean what so tell me about that why like why did you create a website and what were you hoping to get out of it at that point or were you just like me just doing it because it was cool and you thought you might be able to figure it out no it was a matter of necessity i think where i was in uh in in life i was um i was at a, at a large law firm in nashville um, and even though Nashville is in the, you know, the it city now that everybody's talking about <laughs> and it's in the building boom and they have TV shows and all that, uh, back in 1990, when I started there, it was definitely not seen as very cosmopolitan and probably not a place that an immigration lawyer, um, could make it. And I was at a large law firm doing corporate work and I, I, I liked the firm and it was really good work. And, you know, if you want to be doing that kind of work, it's probably there's a few places that I could think of that were better there. But I had stumbled onto an immigration case um, about a, a year into the, well, maybe not even sooner than that, maybe about six months into the practice and decided that that would be an area I'd want to get into. But it really was not something that my firm was encouraging. Um Around this time, and your older listeners who might appreciate this, so lawyers, law firms were starting to get computers on desktops of lawyers back in the early 1990s, and my firm had just started to get them. Uh, and of course, the only people that got the computers were the partners <laughs> and the ones who totally had no interest uh, in computers. Um, and so I didn't get a computer. Uh, I also had a problem with a uh, that you had to share a secretary um, with a with with a partner at this firm, and uh, I wasn't getting my work turned around in the speed that I needed to to keep everybody I was working with happy. So I bought a computer um, so that I could basically do my own word processing. Hmm. And I at that time it was a CompuDyne. Remember those guys? Yeah, barely. Uh, <laughs> and I had a uh, a friend from law school who told me, oh, you should get a modem on there. And because I was talking to him trying to develop immigration work and immigration's mm-hmm. all federal and it's all done by mail. And it's really sort of a well-suited practice for uh, to be a national practice, um, even back then. So I got the uh, the modem, and I found Usenet news groups, yep. uh, which uh, they're still around, <laughs> I guess. 
Oh, yeah, um, they're still there. They just they're they're not nearly as as well populated as they used to be. They're not, but there were at, at the time, and they're probably still there. I haven't looked in a long time. There were um, there were a couple that were immigration related, mm-hmm. and when I got there, I figured out that there were basically there were kind of two groups of people that were there. There were people in from the tech world that were asking questions about uh, immigration, and there were people from academia. And that's because that's who had internet access sure. uh, in the early 1990s. So I started to um, answer questions on there, and they were completely non-commercial, uh, the, the news group. So it was just basically Q&A and being sort of an expert that was available to answer questions for people and saw that uh, you could actually – get work uh, from from doing that. And I also, I like to write, and it was sort of a perfect uh, little setup for me. Um, the firm that I was with, I think, was a little curious about why they were, uh, through the conflict sheets, were coming in, you know, cases from Arizona and Maine, <laughs> places like that. Um, but it, it, I, around 1993, I, I remember this, uh, there was a New York Times story, uh, and they were talking about Mosaic and the new web graphical web browsers and how it was going to change the internet because unlike the rest of the internet, there was agreement that it, these were commercial, uh, that they could be, the websites could be commercial in nature, that they didn't have to be non-commercial like the news groups were and that right. people could actually do advertising, which was going to be revolutionary. And I remember there was a website uh, for the Vatican and a website for uh, Graceland in Memphis, where I wasn't living in Memphis yet, but I've, uh, I was fascinated by and, that. And people don't realize this, but that there was no Google at that point. And so no. you, you figured um, out where to go on the internet by driving around town and looking for billboards or opening up magazines and looking for what URLs hiding in ads and things oh, this like was that. Even, this was even before that. Yeah, oh, uh, I suppose. Uh, that yeah. was like 90, 95, 96, <laughs> where all of a sudden the, uh, having a web address was a hot, hot yep, stuff. Yep. Um, so... I had a, uh, so, you know, the light bulb went off that this might be my ticket um, to going out and, and setting up an immigration practice um, and getting some uh, attention and being able to go out on my own. So that was, uh, that was in 93 that I started planning it. And then in the spring of 94, I quit my job. Uh, in April, I got married in May, uh, just to throw that in there. I took a little honeymoon. <laughs> Uh, and then by, I was working on the, uh, the, I had been working on the website for a while before, even before I left the firm. Uh, and then in June it debuted and I thought I was going to be the first. And you said at the beginning I was the first, but I should correct you that there were, uh, two firms that beat me by a couple of weeks in DC, these two large firms, um, the Venable firm and Aaron Fox. So I don't huh. want, if there's anybody at those two firms, I don't, I don't want them to think that uh, <laughs> I was trying to claim something that wasn't true, but I was the first solo. And the, and the third, and the which first, is still right. a thing. <laughs> I was the first solo. I was the first immigration lawyer. I was the first in the Southern United States. I can come up with a lot of firsts on there, but it wasn't the first website by about 20 days. Right. And, y- <laughs> you know, it's interesting because at, at that point, the number of people with internet access was vanishingly small compared to what it is today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and like you pointed out, you know, people like... Were, people the, were constantly telling me that when I was telling them what I was working on. Well, yeah, and the, and the air quotes important people might have had computers on their desks, but most of them still thought this was a secretarial machine and what would they do with the thing. Um, but, but even within that sm- much smaller internet, you were still finding work and value online. Yeah, you know, my... My insurance agent, who's a friend of mine, um, I remember this conversation in 90, 
94-ish, when, uh, late 94, when this had been out not too long ago, he was really genuinely worried that I made a horrible decision. I left this <laughs> great big law firm and I was making some good money there. And I'm now the solo trying to be an immigration lawyer in Nashville where there was really no work. And I was telling him, I said, don't, I said, don't worry about it. I'm not depending on Nashville um, for my work. And I told him what I was doing. And he goes, surely there, the, there's, there can't be very many people that are going to be looking for a lawyer on the internet. I hope yeah. you have a backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, he's still my, my insurance agent. I, 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 I talk to him every once in a while uh, on there, and I remind him of that conversation that he was, was certain that the internet was, a, was, was never going to be much of anything. Uh, on there. So <laughs> it turned out uh, it turned out to be a little more than that. The other thing that was really nice for me at the time was because there was very few people that were online in the legal community at that point. There was a, a hunger in the news media nationally for doing stories on on people that were getting online. Oh sure. Um, and it was just amazing that just having a website um, you know, I'm looking at my wall right now in my office and there's a, you know, there's like from 97, there's a Wall Street Journal article that was about, and I, there was a USA Today with my picture, article with my picture on it. Um, you there's know, some the, value uh, in being first. <laughs> there was. The New York Times did wrote about, I mean, there were about a hundred, I did interviews with probably about a hundred reporters over hmm. a two year period about that website. NPR interviewed me for about five minutes just about having a website. It was that interesting. Yeah. Uh, now you would think about that. It's like, what were they, why is that? Why when you had to explain what all? a website was first. You yeah. Know. So I was getting <laughs> a lot of publicity and it was, it was really helping me to, to get work. So I, it was sort of a combination of the website itself and, and then also the, the news media uh, also was, was, was giving me some traffic. Well, and I noticed looking at this version of your website, at least, that you are hosting all of the immigration forms, which, um, and, and you, you told me before the show that they, they weren't actually available from the, from the INS website. It was the INS at the time. Um, so, yeah. you had this independently valuable thing that people might seek out that whether or not they were customers. Yeah. Now, there, there, it, it was, the, the immigration service didn't even have a website, I think, until, I don't remember what year, maybe 97, 98. And for the first couple of years, it was just, uh, it was in the Clinton administration. Um, Doris Meissner uh, a, 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 was the commissioner of the INS at the time. And the whole website for the INS was Doris Meissner's biography, which hmm. really gave a lot of value uh, on there. I'm <laughs> sure, you know, it was an impressive biography, but it didn't really, uh, it's not really why people, what people needed. Um, but they, the immigration service had okayed uh, the idea of using um, elect uh, uh, PDFs of, of immigration forms. Up until mid '90s, there were the, the government said you had to actually take their version, and you weren't allowed to make copies or anything like that. And they changed that; they liberalized that, thankfully. Um, so I saw an opportunity to get some. Uh, provide some value by uh, taking the immigration forms that were out there and making them available for free on the website um, rather than having to buy expensive forms management software or drive to an immigration service office or order it by mail. And it and you've got your uh, you've got your forms uh, or your statistics are actually on this website. And so um, I can look at your statistics from June of 1997 <laughs> and it looks like the, it, it oh, looks yeah. like the forms was uh, the forms landing page was your third most popular landing page. So it seems to, seems to have done the trick. Yeah, no, it, was, it worked. <laughs> I'll take it at that. Now it's sort of like, it's another one where you're, 
uh, puzzled why there was so much value, especially since the immigration service makes all of that stuff available today. But I mean, uh, you were legitimately getting, you were getting thousands of page views and, and, you know, and I realize these older statistical reports are a little bit problematic, but it, it looks like you were getting thousands of page views a month, uh, back in 1997, (laughs) which is kind of amazing. Yeah, there was a lot of traffic and there was still wasn't a lot of competition. Uh, even after a couple of years, there were probably maybe a half a dozen uh, immigration lawyers um, after two or three years that had websites. And a few of them still are. It's, it's funny because I think some of the best ones that are out there now are still those same law firms that were on early. Um, yeah. So. Well, we all, every once in a while we get together. We're all friendly. It's a very friendly bar, and these, <laughs> we all know each other, and we see each other at conferences and all that, and we get together and uh, reminisce a little bit. And so, after a while, uh, this, these things came called blogs came along, and you started one of or the first law blog as well. Uh, well, according to uh, I think this is Bob Ambrogi uh, yeah. that that, it, that it's the first uh, on there. Um, uh, he, I think he wrote an article one time and he he noted some other blog was uh, the first law firm blog. And it's like, no, I think I had one that was earlier than that. And you can go on the Wayback Machine and look at it yeah. um, on there. But yeah, it was, um, you know, basically all it was, was I had an HTML text file. Well, just a text file. And I would... Uh, uh, add it by date, uh, you know, entries. We were, I was following a uh, some legislation on immigration that was uh, on H-1Bs. It's still controversial now, but back then I was following a, a big bill to increase the number of H-1Bs, and it was of enormous interest to the tech and the academic communities mm-hmm. that uh, I was mentioning before. Um, so I was following it online, and I had was also trying to do some advocacy work and get people interested in, uh, you know, making phone calls and uh, going to Washington and that kind of thing. So I set up this uh, online journal, I think I called it, uh, to help people uh, to get push information out to people that were interested in that issue. And I would just basically upload and download that one file each day and add to it. And so it was a very manual blog. Yeah, they didn't have blogging software uh, back then. <laughs> that uh, that was all it was, and it was uh, it was extremely. I think there was one day that there was fifty thousand views on that thing uh, on there. It was a very hot issue yeah. uh, at the time. So it was uh, very effective. And, in, um, you know, I later on, I, I, I started uh, blogging on a, um, on, not on my own law firm website, but on another site that uh, was an immigration news site. And they, I've had unbelievable traffic on some days there. When the president gave his big speech on immigration two years ago, I was fortunate enough to get a, an advanced look at it hmm. and was able to post the details. Um, it was embargoed until uh, like an hour before the president was going to be giving a speech, but I was able to put that in a very detailed summary of what the president was going to release before anybody else did. And there were 300,000 views it's really it, it caused a lot of problems for the uh, for the for the host <laughs> yeah. on there and then i found out that the summary that i did was somebody in china had translated it and had uh, posted it and it was it was circulating in chinese around the internet my summary and then i had hmm. all of a sudden had 300 new twitter followers from china by the next morning on there so it's a uh, blogs still matter even if people don't, don't think that they're as influential as they used to be but uh, well and, you know, and it sounds like um it, and this is kind of what i was trying to 
get people to help get their heads around when it comes to blogging, having a website is, uh, you know, the, the billboard model of encountering someone at the moment they're ready to pick up the phone or fill out a contact form and contact a lawyer is not necessarily the reason you do it. It's for some sort of um, more tangential ways of building brand and exposure and maybe getting to those people who are looking for a lawyer at the moment. But, you know, getting 300,000 page views of the immigration law speech or the immigration speech didn't didn't get you. It, those all weren't all potential clients. No. They're all people who now had at least been exposed to who you are and what you do and might have found their way back to you. Uh, and it sounds like you earned media over the years. Um, and at one point, you even used your online presence to get a class action together, it sounds like. Yeah, that was actually um, really pretty cool how that all worked out. I mean, it wasn't cool what we were having to, uh, we were litigating over, but it was, it was tied into those, that, that president, the speech that I was just talking about that the president gave one of the, um, executive actions that he proposed was going to help, um, about, we estimated about 40,000, uh, Indians that were in, um, advanced degree, were, were in, uh, the professions, a lot of, a lot of uh, people in tech fields and medicine and other fields. And, um, they were going to be able to file for work cards, which was were going to permit them to be able to change employers. And even though they were not going to get their green cards any faster, it was enormously important for a lot of people who had were potentially going to be stuck working for the same employer for potentially decades mm -hmm. because green cards are not available. And so you can imagine why uh, that would be, uh, you know, people were really excited about it. And I had gotten a call from somebody uh, in Washington. And this is again, because of the blog and the, and, and, and there, but I had gotten a call from somebody, um, that was, uh, it, it, that was an insider, uh, in, in DC who told me the, on a Thursday that the government was about to pull the plug on this program that pe people had been spending a lot of money preparing these applications to go out in a week. Um, it was on September 25th of last year and the applications were going to start going out. You couldn't file the applications until October 1st. Uh, and we're getting notified that, I mean, I'm getting told that they're going to pull the plug on uh, as, as early as the next day. So the person was contacting me because they knew I had a blog with a lot of traffic. They knew I had a lot of people that are followed me on Twitter. Uh, and they knew the immigration bar people uh, had a lot of connection. I'm on the board of uh, governors for the immigration bar. Anyway, so... And I did what what they had asked, which was to get the word out because I was really concerned about it. And sure enough, the next day, the government pulled the plug uh, on it. And the uh, what uh, what I thought, I mean, at the beginning, I was like, well, what can what can I do about it? And I had a friend who had a experience with class actions. Um, and I'm not a litigator at all. I'm an immigration lawyer that uh, is an administrative lawyer. And. We said that uh, you know what let's let's sue uh, on we have a uh, we we thought we had a uh, a pretty good case and let's let's use social media as much as possible um, to move on this uh, and, and and we can actually do some experimentation on some new tools so we had uh, over the weekend um, you know it started on, on my blog and on Twitter which by uh, also I should say I added about. Uh, after I posted that thing that the government was going to pull the plug, I had about a thousand new followers on Twitter in mm -hmm. about uh, 24 hours uh, on there. And I had, 
I, I had told people that if they are interested potentially in being plaintiffs um, to contact me. Then we set up on Constant Contact a web form um, that people could fill out to collect the information that we needed. Um, and we gathered, you know, we got about 10 people together to work on this thing. This was on Friday that, uh, you know, the next day after the announcement, we said it by that evening, we said we would, we were going to explore doing a, a class action suit. Uh, and by the end of the weekend, we had 1500, uh, people fill out the plaintiff, uh, the potential plaintiff form. Um, and we were able to identify 15 that we decided to make our name plaintiffs, including one that was in Seattle, which is where, uh, you know, we thought was going to be a, a friendly district court. And I should say that case is still alive uh, on there, but uh, the wow. uh, on, on there. But so we did that. Then we decided instead of, uh, you know, the my colleague of the class action said, well, we, we need to have a press conference on Monday. I said, you know, I was not. I didn't really know anything about how, how these things worked. And I, we decided, we talked about it and it's like, well, let's use a, let's, let's do it as a, uh, a live tweet. And we had three lawyers, um, that were basically for, it was supposed to be for an hour and it turned out to be for two hours, but we were just, you know, as a deluge of questions that were coming at us on Twitter. You can though I guess, go back and see all that because it's all Twitter doesn't forget anything. Um, and that was kind of cool. And we had reporters as well that were asking questions uh, on it. And then we had also, we decided to crowdfund the litigation. We were not going to, we wanted to do, we would say we wanted to do it pro bono, um, but we had expenses uh, that we had to deal with. So we used a, uh, a, a, um, a site called Crowd Defend, uh, and we also had to check with our state bar and find out if we could do it, which they were they, they were fine with. It. And this this website was they, these people were really great, and they, they mostly was focused on raising criminal defense uh, funds. This was their first, uh, I think, this was their first immigration hmm. uh, matter, and it was certainly their first class action. It looks and, like it's shuttered now. I can't find it online. Uh, well, I'll see if I can find <laughs> it. But basically, for you. But the uh, we had we said we wanted to raise twenty five thousand dollars, and we put it out um, and you know to the Twitterverse uh, that we were uh, doing that, and it was on a Sunday night, like the next week, the Sunday night, and by Monday morning, it was uh, completely funded. Wow! Um, so that w- that was great. Uh, we set up a Facebook page um, that was for just for the uh, for the suit, and that was also a good place for us, better than Twitter and other places, for us to be able to speak in a longer form about what was happening and post documents and that kind of thing. And um, there's any- well, so, well, so let me let me change gears and ask you. So you've had one of the first websites, pr- probably the first law blog. Um, and 22 years have passed, and you've been keeping those things up to date and doing new things with them. Um, what do you think would be the equivalent to having the first website or first law blog today? Like if I were a lawyer doing the same thing, getting ready to hang my shingle and wanting to make a splash, what do you think would be roughly equivalent to doing what you did? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that, 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 uh, there's anything that's going to be quite that, you know, analogous to that right now. Um, I'd say some of the stuff that we're talking about with artificial intelligence, um, would, might be in that area, at least in the, in the tech area. Um, but it was a, you know, for me, it was sort of right place, right time, uh, on there. I was extraordinarily lucky, um, to be starting my practice then. Um, 
you know, on the other hand, uh, I think that the tools that are out there, I mean, that have been built up over the last 20 years, I think, make it a lot easier for young lawyers who are trying to get into this area and be solo and to be able to use technology to do to build a practice are there today when they're not. But I don't know that it would be quite, you know, th- there's anything that would get a, uh, you know, an individual lawyer quite the kind of notoriety today. Um that you could get back then because it was just, you know, a sort of, sort of a unique time. Well, let me, let me turn that around then. If you could go back in time to give yourself some ni- some 2016 <laughs> advice in 1994, um, what kind of advice would you have given yourself? Well, I think probably a few years ago, I, you know, we do a lot of work now for entrepreneurs and we've, we've always done that, but really we we're focused a lot more on startups and, entre- and, and entrepreneurs. And I think I probably, would have done a lot more work on educating myself on business management. Um, now I spend a lot of time thinking about those kinds of issues uh, for the firm. But I think back then, uh, you know, I think I, I was somewhat of a natural from when it came to marketing. Uh, but that's just one aspect of uh, of running a business, and I think I was pretty good at that. But uh, there were a lot of aspects to financial management that uh, I wish I had. Um, had had more knowledge, and I and I, you know, if if I had the, I would have probably taken more business courses in college. And it really, a law firm is your a law <laughs> firm is a business, and I think a lot of people when they're coming out that start out their own firms have zero business training, and they sort of think that a law firm is not a business, that a law firm is a law firm, and you can just basically you know figure it out as you go. Uh, and, I, and I guess that's true in terms of my, you know, my firm survived and, and, and grew and it's great and we're, and it does really well. But at the, and, and it did at the time also, but I really probably could have benefited a lot more from actually being able to read financial statements and understand things that uh, now I, I know a lot more about that at the time I should have known more about. Well, and I suppose being business savvy probably matters more now too than it, it even did at the time. It's, it, it starts to look like we're seeing the sunset of, you know, the traditional um, just being a lawyer law firm. Um, and and it's, it's a profession, not a business type of thinking. Yeah, I think there's truth to that. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Greg. And to our listeners, the fourth edition of The Lawyer's Guide to Marketing on the Internet is coming out in the spring. So maybe stay tuned for that. But the third edition is in the ABA bookstore right now if you want to go ahead and grab it. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and The Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.